This week's episode, it's sponsored by our amazing friends over at Syncfusion. Listen, you need to be building your apps with Syncfusion. Their amazing toolkits for any application will help you go from concept to truly stunning application. Whether you're building web, mobile, or desktop application, they have you covered. They have everything that you need. Navigation, buttons, notifications, layouts, calendars, grids, data visualizations, editors, file format support, image editors, PDF viewers. They have everything that your application needs. They have over 145 controls ready for your applications. So you're like, where do I go to get started? Go to syncfusion.com slash merge conflict. Check out all of their amazing controls for Xamarin or anything else that you're building for. They not only have great prices and a free trial, but they also have a free community license. And if you're part of Visual Studio Dev Essentials, a free program, Syncfusion Xamarin Controls are now part of that. Go to syncfusion.com slash merge conflict to learn more. And thanks to Syncfusion for sponsoring this week's pod. Hey everyone, James here. Frank can't be with us because we are live here at Microsoft Ignite 2019. I have the honor and the privilege to host one of my best friends in the entire world, Mads Torgerson over here. Uh, he's, he's here with me live. This is a great opportunity because there's no other time where we've been in the same building together, Mads. Well, that is almost entirely true. First of all, I'm thrilled to be here. And now that we don't have offices next to each other anymore. This is the only way I get to talk to you. It's true. Uh, some people may not know, but when I came to Microsoft, I had the opportunity to work in Building 25. And this was a great building because uh, when I took Frank into Building 25, he just started to drop his jaw in awe of all the names on, on, on there. And there's a lot of people I didn't know that were on the .NET team for a long time. And Frank is really deep, rich, ingrained in, in, uh, in knowing people uh, in the area because he used to work at Microsoft. And he was like, you, you, you're next to Mads. You're next to this person. You're next to that. And I was like, yeah, you know, just like, I just like say, hey, Mads, how's it going? And, and so we were literally office, literally office mates and right next to each other. Yeah, we were. Yeah, when you were loud, I was the one who got the, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I remember, I remember I think you were doing a live stream one time and I could hear everything that you were talking about. I think it was with Fritz or something like uh -huh. that on, on Twitch. I could hear everything. And actually, it was like putting my ear against the wall. I was like, ooh, what's Matt's talking about? I'm interested. <laughs> Even though I could just tune in online. But um, yeah, now we're, now we're in building 18. So we're now we're, we're floors apart, I think. Yeah, and we only bump into each other occasionally, which is a shame. It is a shame, but we do get to talk about travel and about life. Uh, every single conversation I have with you is absolutely delightful. You you, you make advice. me want to show up to work. Oh, oh. <laughs> now I'm weeping into my microphone. <laughs> That's true. There's, there's, not, there's a lot of people that I love on campus, but honestly, some of the conversations I have with you are just like, wow, like um, just really great, like, you know, talk and conversation. I think that is the... Um, um, when people really show up, I love that. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. always have something to say, right? <laughs> Other than ah, the coffee's a little thin today. That's you know? true. Yeah. So uh, that I love working there, and I love us all being in the same building. Yeah. Um, a lot of people ask me, like, you know, how how is it going from you know Xamarin to Microsoft? But like, how has it been? You've been at Microsoft for a long time, doing C sharp. Like, how has it been? Like, can you give some insight into just how Microsoft works and what's it like to be in uh, .NET area? Well, so. I think that I've, I've almost always been blessed with being on a team that had a good vibe on it, with a few exceptions over the years. I've, you know, there's been a great spirit of um, both being passionate about 
doing the work together and you know instead of just instead of co competing you know always helping each other out and going out of our way to you know to boost each other um but also like that people are more than just colleagues that we tend to become friends and get interested in other aspects of each other's lives right so i've i've had a very fulfilling 14 years at microsoft and i and and i have that now probably more than ever i think it is um wonderful place to live and the things that i think that the opening up that we've done over the last what, five seven years or so um has given that another has added another flavor to it where it's not just you know us in the bunker being open and friendly with each other but we sort of we're more the the membrane to the rest of the community has thinned and there's sort of more of a, a bigger interaction that is also i think generally very um very rewarding yeah i i agree with that i think that a lot of times uh, people ask me about that xamarin microsoft transition i said actually you know how the team works is different i think also how i've noticed how the .NET team and the c sharp team and the the winforms and wpf team work is at xamarin like we we had a product that we sold right it was it was xamarin we, we sold the product and at microsoft like xamarin's included in visual studio community edition is free so now that means that we can focus on listening to our developers. Like, what are they actually building and how can we build things to help them be more productive? Yes. So that's quite delightful. And you're right. I think the move to open source has been, been delightful, too. So that's kind of, you know, Frank and I did a really in-depth podcast on C Sharp 8. It was probably one of the most in-depth uh, I mean, we just opened the documentation and read it, to be honest with you. <laughs> but, uh, you know, one thing that like, came up is that we just launched .NET Core 3, just launched C Sharp 8. And every time I go to the C Sharp 8, like, documentation, I always just click on one feature. And my mind is, like, blown. And I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. I could use this right now today. And I don't want to just go over, like, what's new in C Sharp 8? Because people can go read docs or read or listen to that podcast. I really wanted to sit down and talk about that transition, that removing that that bubble, and uh, how do we get closer? So I thought what would be really neat is to talk about that transition that you've seen of how we used to build C-sharp and .NET right. and how we build it now. Uh -huh. right? yeah. So how do we actually build features for C-sharp? Like, how does that work? I actually don't even know. Right. Well, it starts with design. <laughs> and, um, and, of course, the first, the first part of designing a feature is not deciding what it looks like it, it's deciding whether you want it right it's deciding which features we should focus on and uh, there's been quite a big transition in some ways in how we go about it and in other ways not at all <laughs> okay um so when i joined 14 years ago um the the lead designer of c sharp was anders heilsberg whom like, one or two of your listeners may have heard of Big fan. In fact, whenever I see Anders like walk around campus and he'll just have like a casual lunch in the middle of like, like, oh my God, there's Anders. I'm like, I'm not worthy. But he seems like just a very laid back, really, um, really like delightful person. Yeah, he is. And he, uh, he sort of already, already when I joined and I, I was lucky to get to be on the C Sharp language design team from when I started. And, and one thing that I noticed was even that there was a language design team and there were language design meetings that Anders was running that were uh, very focused on the collaborative aspect, right? It, it was a, in those meetings that C-sharp got created, like the next version of C-sharp got created. 
Now, and so there was a set of people that were carefully chosen by him, and and the rule was when you got in that room, you did not represent your team or your your perspective or anything as in a political fight or you know it wasn't a negotiation. It was a creative process. You got in there. We were all in it together, and we and we created things. And that was really important because back then we did all this in deep secret, right? Uh, the the first people got to hear about what was happening in C sharp was way after we had done lots and lots of work, and um, and sometimes you know way past the point of no return. <laughs> and so it was really important that we used each other as sounding boards and and had kind of a and it was important to Anders, right? People think of him as this genius, and he is. But I think he's the kind of genius that needs, probably most geniuses really do, that he, 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 needs his, um, he needs sparring, right? And he needs a collective process because um, multiple viewpoints really, really matters. Like having different perspectives really matters. And so we get a very diverse set of people uh, in the room and we would look at things from many sides and, and decide what was the optimal way to go. Now, that's still how I try to do it. Um, and um, the difference being that I'm not a genius and I don't have the surefire kind of ability that Anders has that he can just know whether something's going to be a success or not. He came into that already with an enormous amount of experience. And so he could, he could sort of tell, yeah, this is going to, this is going to be good, right? He was the one who could say, yeah, this is going to be um, a blockbuster. And he was right, just based on experience. But us mortals, we can't do that. And so for us to make the right decisions in that room, we really need to extend it in a way to the whole world, right? We need to have ongoing conversation where we understand what matters to developers, which things are they struggling with, what, uh, both in terms of what kinds of roadblocks can we remove from them, but also what, what would delight them, you know? What are the things that they would go, oh, this is awesome, thank you so much. And, um, and we have to learn that day by day by day, right? And so the the move to having an openness around the C-sharp language design was one that we, we did very carefully because on the one hand, we needed to open up and we needed to get much more interaction with the bigger community on a much more day-to-day -day scale rather than, you know, at ship time. But we also needed to preserve, I think, what was also key to the success of C-sharp, which was that there was a coherence and a um, center of gravity around it that we didn't just, you know, do kitchen sinks, kitchen sink stuff, but we had shared vision and, and so on. And so having the design meetings is something that we chose to keep and having um, specific people get together often and discuss in real time rather than the kinds of interactions that scale more. And... That, is a, that does make it a little exclusive still. Like you can't just go to the C-Sharp language design meeting. Um, and it's up to us that are there to kind of bring in the other perspectives to that event. But, it's, but it seems to strike a balance. I mean, I, sometimes I do feel bad about it. I, w I want the whole world to be able to participate, but it doesn't scale, right? And, and so um, but that's the best balance that we've been able to strike where we still have a set of people that carry the mantle and kind of are responsible for the coherence and the spirit of C-sharp. Because yeah, there has to be some sort of um, 
long-term strategy for it, you know, in general, like even going into probably C-sharp 7 or C-sharp 8, there needs to be this vision, right? And inside that vision, I'm assuming there's, there's wiggle room where there is, this is the vision that we think we have. And then maybe we learn that it's not the vision or maybe only 50% of it. And then we change it. So like from those, those meetings that you have, how do you take those ideas and then collaborate with the community to understand that those are actually the things that they want to do? And have you ever found that they're not the things that they want at all? Oh, yeah. Well, we, we communicate everything we do on language design, our, the sort of, um, when you say the materials we work with, the, uh, the artifacts, the documents, the, um, everything related to our design process is public. It's just in the C-sharp Lang repo on the, under the .NET organization on GitHub. And so it's not, so we don't have some sort of like shadow bookkeeping and then we, then we publish it when we're ready. That's where it happens, right? If we, so if there's some new idea, it gets, it gets logged as an issue. If we want to turn that into a proposal, then the proposal is up there on GitHub uh, right away and people can chime in and they do in droves, right? And then we try to keep an eye on it. It's actually really hard to keep up and we kind of have to, um, be a little selective or spread the work sometimes, but um, then we get a sense of not just you know how much people like it, but also a lot of creative input. Like, what if you did this, or how about this syntax, or what if you could also do that? And and so, but but but, and on top of that, we people will play in some of their scenarios. Like, I wanted to use it for this, and we're like, oh, we didn't think about that scenario. Can we? So. Um, so that's sort of like the interaction point in the day-to-day work is the, is the GitHub repo. And it sounds like you have this diverse set of individuals on campus thinking about it. And then when you open it up, that diverse set of individuals that are using and even thinking about using a feature really broadens. I mean, to get that many people in a virtual room is kind of what GitHub is. You, you create this issue and now you have the world at your disposal of a diverse set of individuals that are all using things like you said you would never even think about and it, it's 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 curious how that works because when i read the documentation i'm like oh this is interesting how they documented it but i'm gonna use it completely different because right. everyone codes a little bit different yeah and so i think that's a, so that's sort of the next ring out is the um the community that participates in github but you also have to keep in mind that that's not necessarily, or that is certainly not, to be, <laughs> to be more direct about it, a representative set of C-sharp developers either, right? It, it takes a certain, there's a certain self-selection in being someone who goes and discusses language design. Um, and um, that, and, and someone, someone who's able to articulate themselves about the design of a language feature, they may not be, you know, the, um, the, the typical user of that language feature. And so... Um, we have to make sure that we don't just adhere to that community. You typically get people who have more, maybe they have more tolerance for complexity or highly abstract things, or uh, they don't have enough, you know, there's just a certain perspective that maybe gets overrepresented there. And so it's important that we also try to reach more broadly and try to get the buzz of what are people otherwise doing and what are the day-to-day problems that they struggle with. We go to events like this one, talk to a lot of people, um, try to do some user groups and stuff where we um, get more breadth and more diversity in the input um, and try to bring that back as well. So that's part of being a language designer is to uh, 
be a you know uh, to be a messenger back to the design team of what you um, of what what you think people feel about things and what you think is important. Yeah, because there's the the tone that you can get from internet conversation, but then the tone that you get from actually talking to someone is completely different sometimes, right. even if it's the same person. Right. Yeah, which is kind of interesting to think about. That's really it's really fascinating to sort of hear how that that expands, but also just how it expands outside of that meeting room into the open, but then into all sorts of actual real interactions right. with the development community. That's very cool. And so when it came to C Sharp 8, or any C-sharp feature, actually. Like, how do you make the determination when there is, like, a lot of pushback on a feature, but then you still decide to go and do it anyways? Like, has that happened? Where you're like, and, and how do you make that decision? Well, there's still, I mean, at the end, there's still some amount of gut feel involved. I think um, a lot of the things that, a lot of the product decisions that are made in general you can do in a very sort of data-oriented way or, or based on uh, hard facts of some kind or measurements or whatnot. And I, but I don't think, if language design is one of them, then I haven't found the way to do that. Um, there has to be a lot of gut feel involved and also a little courage sometimes. If you take a, take a feature, like the biggest, the most impactful feature of, of C-Sharp 8 by far is nullable reference types. And it's not a slam dunk feature because it, I think it brings a tremendous amount of value, and I think any new programming language should just have that built in from the beginning, and, and everybody would be happy. But it's also something that, in order to introduce it in version 8 of an existing language, um, there's a lot of... Th that adds a lot of extra hassle, and, and, and you know, the opt-in that has to happen, the, uh, the, the thinking about how do you move forward code that wasn't written with this feature and now you want to make it sort of null resilient and all that. And so there's a lot of drawback that immediately is there where it's a feature that people have to adopt and do extra work to adopt on their existing um, code bases. And there was definitely pushback saying, hey, we, we just can't do that kind of thing. Um, that is just, uh, I'm sorry, we have to wait for the next programming language to come around, right? And and just a lot of people worried about the risk of people will say, okay, I'm going to flip the bit on this feature because it's too much hassle for me. And so in order to decide to do that, that was a feature that has been particularly long in the making with very early prototypes that we shipped and got feedback on and gradually iterated and got more people adopting and playing with. And, and it evolved a lot over that to try to find that path through all those challenges and all those hurdles that would actually make it reasonable and make it a good experience and you know knowing full well that we might not find it and we might have to say well i guess they're right we're not gonna do it after all it is a thing that we've considered before on numerous occasions and eventually dropped right it's the first time we thought about this feature where i was there and it's probably even been thought about before i is more than 10 years ago but i think we found it and we were able to show you know uh evidence based in users and and based in you know how the feature flowed uh, to convince people that hey it's good enough now right but if it wasn't for that for their pushback it might not have been so it, so the pushback in this case just became part of what made the feature better and there are some compromises there's some agreement there's some moving forward just like 
sort of anything we do in life. Like right. when you make a decision, you discuss that decision and, and what's going to work well for everyone. And in fact, that's Frank's favorite feature, by the way. Oh, good. So uh, <laughs> mine is the uh, mine is actually new pattern matching um, uh, items in C sharp eight. Do you have a favorite C sharp eight feature? Uh, I love all my children equally. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Well, it's funny because. Uh, Whenever I'm working on one of them, that's the one I love the most. Okay. Where I get sucked into the internal logic of it and trying to achieve maximum beauty and so on. And so I don't really have one that's my favorite. I think that the most impactful one is going to be nullable. Hmm. Um, but I love many of them and I love where they landed. I think that async streams is also one that has been on the table since we did async, which is also a long time ago. That was C Sharp 5. Um, and, um, it, back then we couldn't do it right. Like some of us pushed for it, for a version of it that Andrew said, no, no, that's not going to be good because it's going to be, it have too much performance overhead and it's going to encourage people to do async in too fine grained of a way that's going to hurt their programs and so on. And we were like, oh, this is annoying because we really want the scenarios to work. But he was right. Of course he was right. And in the meantime, now three versions later, um, we have evolved async in various other ways, uh, particularly at the framework level, to where, but also it broadened the language in such ways that you know, now you no longer have to use a task type, that you can use alternatives, and in various ways that you can avoid allocations, there's t value task, which is um, struct-based, so you avoid those allocations and so on. And there have been various optimizations and so on, on, to a point where we said, okay, now we do have the building blocks to make a great async streaming feature. Now we can integrate async and for each and iterators in the language. And then we went and I think created, we made a beautiful, simple version of that. But then somebody says, hey, but what about cancellation? You know, cancellation tokens are this integral part of async. And we managed to keep them completely out of the language. Like, there's just this part of the story that's completely framework-based. Like, how can, you, how can you wrap cancellation into all of that? And then we're like, oh, they're right. Oh, we have to figure this out. And then it was hard again. But then we found our way through that. And, okay, the language knows a little bit about cancellation tokens, but not too much. And it doesn't look too different from what people already do with cancellation tokens and so on. And, we, and again, we're like, okay, we got it. And I, and I love how it came out. I love the... The compromises we made, I think, are the right ones that make for a great feature there. That's both neat in the simple scenarios and, and scales to the complex async scenarios that people sometimes use them for. Yeah, when you see it in use in the scenarios, like streaming data, or even I was talking with um, Scott Hunter about some use cases for it, and just around like file access and like uploading big blobs, it's like, oh, that, that makes a lot of sense. Because I come from the mobile world where it's like, oh, I'm not really streaming data, but then I start to look at some other applications like stock tickers where you actually are pulling in this data in real time and, and uploading big files and pulling down big files. Like, oh, that, I'm, I'm waiting for the ecosystem to build up around it, which would seem quite delightful. Um, can I ask you something about async await yeah. really quick? Mm, so, you it know, might take me a while to get back to you on a reply. <laughs> but I'm bummed, ching. I'll pass the cancellation token in case it gets too <laughs> difficult. Um, okay, so async await has definitely for me change everything of how I program. It's one of my favorite features in C-sharp. I think one of the most powerful features of C-sharp. But I also feel 
that new developers coming to language, it becomes the most difficult part of programming. Yes. So how, how do we actually go to new developers or how do you even approach new developers to explain this programming model to them? It's, it's, I think it's a really hard problem because actually async await is starting to be infused in every single programming yeah. language in different yeah. ways. So how do, how do we approach new developers to explain, explain to them this model? Well, I think that, first of all, there is, the problem with asynchrony is that there's, when we did async, we talked a lot about the difference between uh, inherent complexity and accidental complexity, mm. where uh, when you're trying to work asynchronously, there's inherent complexity in that. Just, just by being async, there's some, there's a new level of difficult that you just can't get away from. It's just part of what async means and uh, like any kind of async not not even talking about the language specific yeah. model here just life async just, yeah yeah exactly <laughs> async in life is just hard um, or it has things that you have to think about that you don't otherwise and um, but then there's accidental complexity which is how difficult it is to write your async code like what barriers are we putting in the way of that and the state of the art back then with async code was uh, all based on passing callbacks, right? So when you're done with that, do this. And the problem with callbacks, of course, is that something that's supposed to happen after now happens in, now the code is now inside instead of being next to, you know. So the, the flow of execution doesn't match the shape of the code, if you will. And you essentially get this inside out thing happening. That's the accidental com complexity of it. If you enclose that whole thing with the, where you sign up the callback, if you enclose it with um, a loop or a, you know, a try-catch um, try or something like that, then that only applies to the signing up code, not to the lambda or delegate that you pass as the callback. And so essentially all the imperative uh, programming uh, that that C-sharp through its, its heritage all the way back to C that it builds on. Like the core of how you program is busted. You can't do anything the same way. Right? That's the accidental complexity. And what async was, and I think successfully, was a way of putting all that toothpaste back in the tube and saying, hey, in an async scenario, now your flow of code, like the order in which things happen, is back to being represented by the, your, the composition of control structures. So we took away a lot of accidental complexity with it. And that I feel good about. Um, now there's inherent complexity left. And then there's also some accidental complexity that we couldn't get rid of, partly because we weren't smart enough, perhaps, and, but also partly because of heritage that was already, especially in the framework. And we just had to, and there were ways around how the, um, how the runtime functioned, around uh, synchronization contexts, and you know various things that were Partial trust, which which was a big thing back then, we had to work around how to work with that, and and so all of these things make it so that the more you dig, the more into async, the more complex it gets. And if you get all the way down to how it actually works, if you're the kind of person who needs to understand things by how they work at the bottom, then it's it's hideously complex. And we did our best, and I don't know if our best wasn't good enough or whether that was just, you know, the constraints just uh, conspired to make it that hard. So 
back to your question, <laughs> I said it would take a while. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and, and this, but so, I, I'm, I'm glad it is because it, it's good to hear from you. You know, yeah. when you have a long, uh, a long computation, you say away task that run, and you go off and you do the computation, you come back, and that's what I'm. So now I'm coming back with the result. Um, I think that you have to explain it at the. You first have to explain the task concept, which is it's an object that represents a thing that's in the middle of happening. And you can interact with that object to, to find out whether the thing is there, what it is if it's there, or have things happen after it's there, when it's there, right? So the concept of a future or a promise is called a task in the .NET framework. People get that concept after a little... Um, uh, after a little, you know, explanation, they get that concept. It's a beautiful concept um, that you know goes way back in computer science history. And now the other part is, and we have a language feature that lets you interact with those with promises, futures, tasks, in such a way that you can create your own delayed thing that consumes that other delayed thing. And that's what await does: is to say, hey, the thing that the the future representing my action is now dependent on that thing completing and whatever I'm doing it to it next. And through that, that's, I think, I think if you go, you can show people async code without explaining tasks and they can sort of, and if they only have to read it, they sort of can. But if you need any kind of, if you need to do anything with the code, let alone write it, like even maintain it, you need to understand what a task is as a concept. That makes sense. Yeah, I think that, Often we overlook that fact that, oh, I'm just going to magically make this a task thing and hey, I'm just going to add async await. And it's like, it's okay. Just skip why this is all happening, but just kind of understand that I'm awaiting on this. I also, um, when I got started with uh, Xamarin development eight years ago, we were on um, uh, earlier versions of C Sharp that didn't have async await. So I was doing a lot of continue with. And, and that concept because I had transitioned from continue with into async await, it, it then stuck, I think, a lot with me because this is what I used to write and this is what I am writing and it's the same code. Yeah. Now, the, the try catching like you were talking about is, is different in that, that context. And then I went to a talk one time where someone showed me the compiled code. Um, when you compile async await code and they're like, this is what it's actually generating for you. And then that blew my mind. And I think that's something that developers... I forget how to even do it now and look and find it, but it was just in a very simple WinForms application that they were like locking it with dot result or whatever, good old dot result all the time. But that sort of opened up my eyes to say, oh, now I see what's actually happening under the hood of saving contacts and doing this. But do you think that that you were kind of talking about that, you know, even async enumerable and async streams took some some time was it because of the constraints of hardware at the time? Like, do you think that because hardware and processors have gotten this, that you're able to do more complex things? Or is that not part of the equation? You no, know, on the contrary, I think that um, by the time we, we were doing async, we finally understood that processors weren't going to get faster on average. They were going to get slower. Mm. In the, Like, if you take an average across the whole market of where do we want our code to run, then we're going to want to run it on smaller and smaller and smaller hardware. There's all the IoT stuff now, and back yeah. then it was mobile. That was a small, smaller thing, right? We just go in smaller and smaller. And so I think C Sharp 4 and Dynamic was the last time we made the mistake of relying on hardware getting better in the future. 
Um, and with async, it was important that every allocation counted and, you know, there would, you know, context switches and so on. That was a, we had to have a focus on all of that and make sure that um, you could do things very efficiently with it. So, it, but it was just that um, figuring out how to do that um, for the, the repetitive scenario of um, awaiting again and again and again on something that keeps producing just took us a while to get all the, you know, get it all figured out. So essentially, it took Steve and Tobe a few years before he uh, he created the before he got the right types together for us. Gotcha, gotcha. Now, one other thing I want to ask you too is C sharp seven was a for me a very delight. Every release of C sharp is a very delightful release uh, in general. I always, like I said, I go to the documentation, I hit a button, and I'm always blown away. Even I, I, since C sharp six, C sharp seven, and C sharp seven was a fascinating release because that was the first time that that the team did point releases. Um, how was that experience for the first time ever making the shift to say, hey, listen, we're going to incrementally improve this? And why did, why did the team even decide to do that? Right. I, we had a particular scenario that drove it, which was uh, integrating span of T into the language. Mm. And uh, we knew that the span thing was happening on a timeline that didn't line up with when C Sharp um, when the major release of C-sharp had to happen. Um, now we have different um, shipping cadences, but back then it was just like, we can't, uh, we're, we're shipping C-sharp here, and span isn't online at that point, and we, we, uh, we, we're not going to wait around for it. And so um, we decided, okay, there needs to be a point release where that is all integrated into C-sharp. So that was uh, C-sharp 7.2, and then since we knew we had to do it, we did sort of a practice point release, C-sharp 7.1, which was essentially, let's put a few features in that are little features that we would normally gather up and just put in the next release just to see what happens, you know, just to work out the kinks of what does it mean to do a point release before it's really important for it to go right, <laughs> you know, before we become the thing that fails in the whole span story as that was rolled out. And so that's why we did 7.1 with a few very delightful little features like async main came in at that point, for instance. Um, and, and then we did um, 7.2, which embraced most of the span stuff. And then we realized a few things that had to be better uh, or to complete the span story as it was rolling out and people were starting to adopt it. And we were like, hey, we'll do another point release and we'll kind of fix those last things. Um, and... Um, on the whole, it was a good story, and I think we would be happy to do it again. Um, we are now... Um, so, right now, we don't have an incentive to do so. Mm. We are trying hard to... Now we, we don't even have... This, this is crazy, James. We don't even have to be cagey about dates anymore. Yeah, right? yeah, we yeah. Just, we, dot .NET now releases on a cadence that we told people about. Like, there's going to be at .NET 5 next year in November, like yeah. a year from now. It's We've, happening. It's happening. And after that year after, it's going to be .NET 6 <laughs> and .NET 7. And on a, wow, we like real, it's a real platform now that can do these things. <laughs> it took us a while, but now we're a real platform. It's all happening. <laughs> well, I feel like it's sort of, I listen to Donovan Brown all the time about DevOps and how the team, like the Azure DevOps team, they're on this cadence of every th three weeks, like continuous, just this. And like, I look at .NET, I'm just like, even, even the iterative of, you know, 3.1 is going to come out for .NET Core 3.1. It's just this iterative over and over again. And that, yeah. that's sort of how the C-sharp stuff sort of felt in my mind with 7, 7.1, 7.2. It's like, well, I'm just continuously getting right. delightful features. 
But so now we have to think about when. So when do the C sharp releases happen? Mm. And and it's fair to say that now Visual Studio ship cadence is no longer the dominating factor. Uh, we've just shown that we can ship a major major version of of .NET and C sharp on a on a point release of Visual Studio. Right. So that's no longer a concern. We sort of divorced those things completely. Like the Microsoft proprietary product is now completely and beautifully. Uh, separate from the .NET platform, um, but but the .NET releases and the C# Sharp releases, on the other hand, those it's important to line those up, and that's sort of also what we learned with the span thing that it, it wasn't good that they didn't line up. So I think that the major C# Sharp releases are always going to be along with the major .NET release from now on, and uh, and we're right now we're definitely thinking to ship to ship C# Sharp nine with the next one with .NET five. And so that means we have a hands full. It's not going to be point point releases between now and then. We're just going to go straight to nine. Whether we're then going to do it in the future, we'll have to see. We haven't decided on the ship cadence for C sharp beyond that. Um, one proposal that I like, but I don't know if we're going to eventually uh, snap there, is that a major version of C sharp ships every other year. Whenever .NET has a non LTS, non long term support release, we will say that's sort of the where there's room for more innovation and we don't have to stabilize so much, that's a good time to have a new big version of C-sharp. And then that's two years between each major version of C-sharp. Maybe there'll be some point releases in between as necessary so we don't, so people don't have to wait too long for features that, are, um, that we could as well ship. But we'll see. I mean, that's just one model and we haven't, we haven't settled on it yet. For now, we'll just plow through and do C-sharp 9 and then we'll settle all that later and we'll see if whether, whether we're on a yearly or by yearly cadence of what happens there. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it, it does make a lot of sense. And as a developer, you want to sort of gracefully upgrade. And I really enjoyed the the 16.3 point iteration. I just got so much new and awesome inside the IDE. And I've been flipping on C-sharp 8 flags all the time uh, using VAR. Phenomenal. And it's fun because I'll, I'll start to refactor some code and then I'll tweet about me refactoring. And then, you know, uh, someone from the team will be like, why don't you use this new feature? And I was like, oh, I didn't know. And then I see like the little triple dot and I'm just like, oh, yeah, light it up. You know, it's super fun. Last thing I want to ask you, because I can't not talk about functional programming on Merge Conflict because that's what we're known for. We're known, uh, we're known for obviously all .NET, but Frank is really AI functional programming. And one thing that I've seen in the world of C Sharp is we've slowly seem to have adopted some functional programming goodness, especially around pattern matching. I guess, is there a, what, what is the relationship like between like the F-sharp design process and the C-sharp design process are kind of both open, obviously now, and and how does that bringing over functional programming into C-sharp developers look like? Like, what was the drive for that? Well, uh, those are actually two different questions. Yes, okay, let's um, start with the first one. So start with the F-sharp, C-sharp collaborations right. so we uh, we do collaborate some on design but we but we don't coordinate design in that sense it's gotcha. very important that f sharp gets to be its own language yes and the, the degree to which f sharp is functional is just like through the roof more than than c sharp right? i mean it is a functional it's programming a functional, yeah exactly <laughs> inherently f sharp is functional right yes. and it should just be able to go and do its its functional programming all the way right um now what has sometimes happened is that F-sharp has gone ahead and done a feature in one way, and now we come and look at a similar feature for C-sharp, mm. and we are faced sometimes with, well, the way F-sharp did it is probably not the best for C-sharp. 
Well, we, you know, one's functional, one's not functional. So well, they don't always align up, I assume. Yeah, well, it's not always that. Um, it's not always that. That's the sort of uh, dividing line. Mm-hmm. But um, but in some cases, it is. If you go back again to async, um, F-Sharp already had an async model. And it was different, very, very different from what we ended up with. And it was really that it was too functional. It wasn't imperative enough. Like, mm-hmm. we wanted to solve imperative programming for async. And F-Sharp sort of did a different thing a little bit. And... Um, and so we had to say, okay, we do async differently from F-sharp. And there F-sharp is now having to try to adapt to the thing that C-sharp did as well as have that coexist with what they already did. And we put them in that situation a couple of times where uh, another, another thing is tuples that we added in C-sharp 7 where F-sharp already had tuples baked in and they had certain framework types that they used for that and a certain way they did it. Um, and we came and said, hey, we need a different model for tuples. We need... Uh, we need tuples to behave differently um, in terms of being mutable instead of immutable. Um, I guess that's the imperative programming again right there versus the functional. And we need them to have different uh, memory char- characteristics. We need them to be value types, not um, not allocated objects and so on, so that they are cheaper to, to create and but then maybe more expensive to copy, right? That was a better trade-off for how C-sharp was going to adopt it. And now... F-sharp is there looking at and going, oh. Um, but then uh, they figure out a way to to um, include value tuples as well in, in F-sharp and design their way through that. And so we, we make sure that those surprises don't happen when we ship C-sharp, but early in the process. And, to, and, and it's just something we can do in C-sharp to, to lessen the blow of that. For instance, uh, the ability to add your own deconstructors in C-sharp. So we're very much... Uh, because there are already system.tuple things in the world that uh, was the F-sharp tuple type. And now it can have deconstructors and be consumed as a tuple in C-sharp as well. And so so we did things on the C-sharp side as well to integrate with that reality. Gotcha. And is the drive more towards, I don't want to say we're driving towards C-sharp to be functional, but it's like we're getting some of those cool functional-esque, like, pattern-matching things. Is that more of a developer demand or, like, hey, like, you know, there's actually a, a different need in the in the, in the the world of .NET for this? I think it's both. Mm-hmm. Um, I, but, I, but it's specifically not because functional programming is cool. It's more for the reasons functional programming is cool, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, um, that makes sense. We, we don't want to pander to the functional audience. It's not, that's not what we're trying to do. And, gotcha. and if you look at how we include those functional-esque features, we often change them quite a bit like yeah. from what they would look like in a functional programming language. It's, so that's more inspiration um, and less outright theft, I guess. We try to really make them feel like an inherent feature in C-sharp. But the world, I think, has really evolved in a way where um, I want to say functional programming. I sometimes say a bit, a bit flippantly that uh, history is on the side of functional programming. I don't actually mean it that strongly, but there are some aspects of functional programming that are really uh, a better fit for the world we're in now where, where data and computation is distributed so much. Um, where object-oriented programming uh, approaches everything by wrapping data and functionality up together um, Functional programming is very much about expressing them separately, you know, and that matches very well a, a cloud world where you or a data world where you have your data 
stored for many different purposes, and it's and the functionality that you want to associate with it that depends on what domain is processing the data, but the shapes of the data have to be shared, right? And so we need to reseparate those, and in, and and that's where pattern matching, for instance, comes in because uh, both functional programming and object-oriented programming is they're both big on what they each are their own solution to how do you make functionality that is dependent on or conditional on the shape of data, right? And in object-oriented programming, you do that with virtual methods. You say, okay, at the base, I have these seven virtual methods or interface methods that I'm implementing, and then the specific type gets to say how to do those seven things for it. And functional programming, on the other hand, what you do is you define the data shape in one place, and then every function that takes that, so the, the quote-unquote base type of that, um, then has a, it switches over the different shapes and, and in one, the, the function is described in one place where it deals with all the different possible shapes. Right? And so in object-oriented programming, you have, um, you have a fixed number of operations as specified by the base type, but you can have as many derived types as you want distributed all over your code. Right? It's, it's closed functionality, open types. Functional side, it's the opposite. You have, the shape is fixed. You have a fixed number of different kinds of this, you know, diff, it's a discriminated union. You have seven different ways that it can look. And that's specified in one place centrally. But now you can write functions over that wherever you like with the switch. So you have closed types, open functionality. That's the duality of it. And the latter, the functional one, just fits better with a situation where the data shapes are established but everyone wants to write their own functionality over it. You can't have a close set of functions over it. You have to have the ability to write shape-dependent behavior without being able to modify the original source code of the types. That makes sense. That makes sense. That's a great explanation of it, by the way. So, hands yeah, off. too bad people can't see what I did <laughs> yeah. with my hands. The, the hands are the, the hand description is very yeah. elegant. <laughs> that's going on in this booth. Uh, yeah, and, and in fact, you know, I, I look at how. Um, the team implemented the switch expressions, especially around tuple um, switch expressions and property expressions and switch uh, expressions. And it's very delightful. Um, I'm, it makes a lot of sense when you read it. And I started to describe it to people in the booth here, especially you have like an address, you have a person, you have first names, last names, and being able to do that, or even the documentation of rock, paper, scissors, the different things that you can pass in. And it was really elegant. I was like, wow, this is uh, very delightful, and I can see how it not only um, cleans up my code in a lot of ways, but also how it sort of makes it more maintainable. It's very readable compared to tons of if statements that you would have to write previously and casting and all these things. It's uh, very nice. So anyways, great right. job, team. Thanks. I'm glad you think that. I mean, the idea, it's not just for it to look more functional, right? It is to be more declarative and, and more terse. People are often worried about terse code because it's it, you, if you're not used to the syntax it can be hard to read but the but the good thing about terse code is that there are fewer opportunities for mistakes mm. right if you have a bunch of if statements that are nested then any little refactoring is dangerous you move things around and it doesn't do exactly what you thought if you have a, a neat little declarative thing where everything you say everything only once um then it's really it's a lot harder to screw up <laughs> yeah yeah and so you, i think you're you're right about the maintenance thing that's certainly one of the things that we're going for with it yeah i'm a big fan of all the things that you and your team do mads thank you so much for uh, thank you it's a pleasure to talk to you yeah absolutely delightful we should probably hang out more yeah we will we should we literally are 
about five feet away from each other on campus. So <laughs> anyways, thanks to everyone for tuning in. Uh, any final words from you, Mads? Anything that you want to tell the people about C Sharp or how they can be more active in the community? Um, well, I think we mentioned the, um, the, the GitHub site. Uh, so definitely um, go in there or in other ways interact with us. You know, tell us what you think and what's important to you. It's always, it always helps us you know, focus on the right things. Yeah, and go flip on that C-sharp 8 flag uh, in all your projects or just upgrade to .NET Core 3 and you're good to go. Absolutely. Uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. And, of course, also we have a special giveaway because we are recording here at Microsoft Ignite 2019. Um, they're giving away some Microsoft Surface Airbuds. You can go to aka.ms slash podcast sweepstakes um, before December, 9, December 15th, 2019. 19 um whenever you're listening to this um, i guess that's free stuff that's cool there's just a piece of paper here by the way that i'm reading this off of that's cool thanks of course to mads for coming in and spending a delightful 47 minutes with me it's the best 47 minutes of my entire life i absolutely appreciate it of course everyone can go on the internet to find mads i'll put links into the show notes you can find me on twitter at james montemagno the podcast at mergeconflict.fm until next time i'm james montemagno I'm Matt Storgerson, and thanks for listening. Peace.